Subspace is your network provider for real-time applications. Subspace uses their own global network and deeply intelligent routing algorithms to make sure your traffic takes the lowest latency path between two points with outstanding jitter and drop performance when compared to the public internet. Accelerate your applications at ftl.app slash packetpushers, and we thank Subspace for being a sponsor. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. I want to take a moment and thank you for listening. My name is Scott Lowe. I am the host of the Full Stack Journey podcast. I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to join us today for this episode. My goal uh, with today's episode, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Now, today I have a guest joining me to talk about a, uh, a product or a technology that I've heard a lot about, but I've not had the opportunity to spend much time with. And so I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So joining me today is Mark Hinkle with Trigger Mesh. So hi, Mark. How are you? Great, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining. I appreciate it. So, uh, Mark, before we get into talking about, you know, Trigger Mesh and what it is and what listeners can do with it. Why don't you just take a minute and sort of introduce yourself to the audience and tell us about your background and then we'll jump into the content. So I um, have been working in tech since the mid nineties. I seem to get into the emerging tech trends before they're popular or profitable and leave well before they're profitable, but I've stuck around in cloud for the last, you know, 10 or so years. Um, my background is, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of everything from uh, customer support and systems management at an internet service provider. And I got into virtualization around 2000. And then I started really getting into open source infrastructure tools. 2006, I was the VP of community at a startup called uh, Xenos. Um, we open sourced our platform then and that led me down a path to uh, uh, working at cloud.com. I was their VP of community and open source for until we were acquired by Citrix. And I, I really got a good front row seat to, you know, cloud's emergence uh, back in the 90s. We talked about it, hosting applications and the way we did it were basically just running data centers to now we have this really interesting on-demand you know, cloud. And so I'm really was uh, fortunate to team up with Sebastian Guzguan, who was one of the early, uh, um, he was like an original Docker captain and a really early adopter of uh, Kubernetes. Uh, he's done a lot of training and talks on Kubernetes. And in 2018, we found the trigger mesh. Early on, we looked at it from the standpoint of just serverless computing. And we were big proponents of uh, Knative when Google launched it. Uh, Google gave us a nice shout out at Google Next about helping them with their strategy because uh, Sebastian had written Kubeless, which was one of the first serverless frameworks for Kubernetes. And so we started out with serverless lifecycle management and realized along the way, the real trend is um, 
event-driven architecture, which serverless is, you know, a serverless is the function as a service, especially as a, a subset of. And um, we founded Trigger Mesh 2018 in September, and we're just celebrating three years today. Well, that's awesome. Is it is it literally today? Uh, no, it was oh, September eighteenth. Okay. So okay. we're three three uh, years and one month, but uh, it feels like uh, you know startup years feel like dog years. We feel like we've been at it for twenty one years. It's been a good ride. Um, you know, we had, have a full team of folks on four continents today, and um, it's hard to believe given that we were started out in our t-shirts and gym shorts writing code and promoting the company and now we have a real company with customers and employees and it's been great that's awesome that's fantastic to hear it's it's funny in the it industry people don't realize just how how sort of a, a small the community is i mean there's you know obviously millions and millions of people but you you run into folks and you meet them in all these different contexts and i was thinking about as you were t- talking about meeting sebastian the first time i met sebastian was actually a, at a at an event for CloudStack, if you remember that, yeah, um, yeah I was I'm a still a CloudStack committer, and yeah, he, he that's where we met. Okay, yeah, so he came to do an event in uh, in Denver, and uh, I, I attended the event, and uh, and then you know we started chatting, and then we just kind of stayed connected after that, and uh, and I've been you know following sort of from a distance his work and and yours with you know uh, Trigger Mesh, but I'm really excited to actually you know sort of dig deeper because. I haven't had the time, uh, or maybe I should say I haven't made the time to really spend uh, some some in-depth uh, time with it. So, you know, let's let's pivot a little bit and start talking about sort of what you guys are doing specifically. You mentioned you started looking at it from the lens of serverless computing, but then have now more shifted to sort of event-driven computing. Um, you know, sort of in, in the context of that, you know, for listeners who are completely unfamiliar with what we might be talking about here, you know, how would you provide what would be your elevator pitch for trigger mesh yeah so trigger mesh is a cloud native open source integration platform and what we mean by cloud native is it's built on kubernetes and knative um, we follow the event driven design pattern that cloud providers like amazon google microsoft follow and what we do is we integrate cloud services on-prem apps and data flows across systems. And we do this uh, using event flows. So event-driven architectures load a 30-year-old design pattern that basically um, you have event producers, changes in systems, and their events. And we take those event streams and send them to event consumers. And the payloads on those events have data. Now, we looked at it from a workflow standpoint originally, but it's also a great way to sync data. And as we see things like Apache Kafka become more popular, uh, we can use those data streams to sync data across systems. And we, we like to call ourselves asynchronous first, but we can also consume message queues from things like MuleSoft or Tibco or you know IBM MQ. Um, or we can create custom integrations. So we do that for Oracle DB um, because they have a bunch of instrumentation. And then we use that to, to create uh, sync data, whether it's for the purposes of, you know, kicking off a, you know, Hadoop um, cluster against the data that was uploaded to Amazon S3 or, 
whether it's, you know, um, whenever I, I make a change in one system, like upload an image um, on file storage on Azure, and I want to use TensorFlow to analyze that image, those are the kind of things we do. Gotcha. So you describe it as a cloud native integration engine. Um, mm -hmm. And, and the, some of the examples you listed, you know, things like kicking off one thing from something that happens elsewhere. And so really, it's almost like, a, you know, for lack of a better term, like a glue technology, you know, people can use this based on event streams, these event producers, um, you know, creating events and indicating that something has happened, uh, you know, a file has been created or data has been uploaded or whatever the case may be, and then kicking off one or more, you know, something else's by these event consumers um, that then do something with that um, to, you know, fulfill, you know, a necessary business logic. Is that a, a reasonable summary? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the key is for you to decouple the business logic from the actual event flows and to do it consistently. Because what happens is when, and we, we alluded to it is, a lot of people write glue and they're one-offs to, to tie systems together. And what we, we think is the right answer is to have a platform that consistently has those event flows and ties them together, but, but puts the business logic separate from the glue. So you put that into trigger mesh and say, every time I get a security related event from XYZ system, I want to send it to Splunk. And I want all my data to go to my data lake. That's, that's an example. Rather than writing bespoke integrations and then having to keep track of all of them. Okay. So uh, does that mean some of the, this, I guess that means these integrations live in Trigger Mesh then. So that you're providing some of these integrations, obviously not all of them because there's, you know, billions, right? But, um, you know, a, a decent, you know, the 20%, the 80% of the use cases sort of thing for the user so they can focus on the business logic. Is that? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, what we do is, is really um, you have a set of credentials. So let's just talk about cloud services because it's easy. Um, you, you might have your, your credentials stored in trigger mesh and then you have a catalog of sources that, that um, we've already done the integration for, and you just need to authenticate through. And then you take the you know stream from Amazon SQS and send it to maybe a, a data lake or an Azure data lake or something like that, or Elastic or wherever. And that's, that's what we do is, is we provide those connections for the event sources, producers, and the event consumers, or what we call targets gotcha okay all right um so we've we've touched on this a little bit but kind of you know maybe focusing a bit more um use cases for for trigger mesh like you, you've given a couple of examples and let's just walk back through those again but really focusing mm -hmm. on or new use cases either one all right um yeah. you know just so so listeners have an idea of like hey they're thinking okay I mean, I'm sitting here and my brain is thinking, you know, okay, there's like a million and one things at least you could do with this, right? But what are some of the most common use cases that you see um, customers solving with Trigger Mesh? Yeah, so there's, um, I call it, there's two sort of categories. One of them is the workflow category. So for example, um, if, and we have uh, financial customers that want to run serverless on-prem. And if you're doing that with Amazon Lambda, 
And in the cloud, you would use event bridge to trigger those um, serverless functions. You can use Trigger Mesh as sort of a multi-cloud, multi-architecture event bridge to trigger serverless workloads. Trigger Mesh is built in Knative. You can actually run functions as a service on Trigger Mesh because um, there's two parts to, to trigger to Knative. One is the FAS part, and the other part is the eventing part. Not eventing the engine is what we leverage to do our event flows. So um, PNC Bank is a good example. They codified their policies into serverless functions, and then they're getting all these events coming from all of the systems that they care about and they're ever growing. So they use Kafka, and we um, are the, if Kafka is the fire hose, um, we're the nozzle, and then we direct it to trigger serverless functions. So that would be, you know, in that, that case, they're, they want to know if they're in compliance or not. So they're running their policies as serverless functions every time so there's a change in one of those systems. The other sort of uh, really interesting and one we didn't focus on and we're finding is really popular is this idea of using those event streams to sync data. So Oracle Cloud Infrastructure is an example where they don't have a ton of instrumentation, but they have a ton of data and APIs. And what we do there is we've taken metrics from OCI and then we filter them and stream them an adjusted stream to Datadog. So I think there's well over 200 metrics that you could stream. And for their some of our customers, they care about you know, 30 or so. So we're taking that stream and we're transforming it, reducing it and redirecting it over to Datadog so that they can monitor Oracle Cloud infrastructure with Datadog. That's a data stream for monitoring, but we also have folks who do things like Salesforce, which is they want every time a change happens in Salesforce, they needed to sync it to their proprietary ERP system. And this is another bank in Europe. And what they want to do is keep those two systems in sync. So we, we create SINK data syncs, which are one way, and then they take a data sync in each direction and that becomes a synchronization or SYNK. So um, we, we create these data syncs to keep data, you know, we're breaking up data gravity because before you would have sort of a source of truth. And now if you can do things in real time, like you can with asynchronous data streams, you can keep your data, you know, closer to your user, whether it's, you know, you may have an ERP system, but you may have a mobile app and it has a Firebase database. You may want to sync every time you have a new customer their unique identifier into Firebase so that you can don't have any duplication of accounts, things like that, where um, it's better for the experience rather than um, making all these uh, lookups that that give you a bad digital experience. You know, nothing's worse than when you're in an application and they're doing all these lookups and the applications, you know, giving you a spinning clock or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I'm just thinking here, you know, like uh, your, to your point about sort of this, I, I, I like to think of it as like almost like a selective data synchronization, right? Like you can yeah. choose the filter by which certain pieces of data get pushed or synchronized or whatever term you want to use. 
to the appropriate places because you might have subsets of data that need to be pushed out. I don't want to use the term edge because that has specific connotations, but pushed closer to yeah. the users or into the applications that are, or that are, you know, most likely to use them. Um, but that's not, that's not all the data. It's just like, you know, customer data needs to be going here or the Salesforce data needs to go there or, you know, um, user access logs or whatever to your application or to your site need to go here. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating actually. Yeah, it really is. It's, and then, you know, you nailed it is the fact that we collect as events, you collect all the data in a log or what, whatnot. But if you're, um, Deutsche Bank and Deutsche Bank, um, is paying, you know, for Splunk, they don't care that all those events go into Splunk. They care about a certain subset of the events. So they don't want to just stream everything from their, you know, logs right into Splunk. It would be, it's advantageous for them to filter it, keep their uh, storage costs down and it gets, gets rid of some of the noise. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh, that's a great point. Um, so what's what's the most unusual thing you've seen a customer do with Trigger Mesh? Most unusual. Um, you know, that's a great question. And I think the the thing is everything is unusual for us when it goes beyond the workflow. Um, and because we looked at it, we're cloud operations folks. So as soon as folks said, hey, I want to use this for data syncs. We really had to uh, take a hard look at it because we weren't coming from that big data world. We were coming from the, I want to, you know, automate infrastructure. So we, we were sort of thinking of it from the puppet chef, HashiCorp Ansible point of view. So every time someone's telling us about data synchronization in a way that is almost, you know, it's, it's very interesting to us because we do not as a company collect a lot of data and we have this we have this platform that is virtually a hammer and everything looks like a nail to us because the ability to mold that technology for different uses so i think i think the oracle cloud one that i just gave was interesting to us because we would have expected there to be a better way to skin the cat and there wasn't um, I think uh, we keep seeing more and more of these data use cases that that folks are, you know, using. They they collect this data. They have a source of truth. Kafka is great for that. And we don't just use Kafka. We can use virtually any event stream. But I think that the whole idea of, for for example, syncing some subset of an Oracle DB to the DBAS. Um, whether it's, you know, Mongo's or any number of other um, host serverless databases, it's, it's very interesting. We interrupt the podcast to discuss network acceleration with sponsor Subspace. The Subspace product set is pretty easy to understand. They are all about getting your traffic from one place to another via the fastest possible route, faster than the internet itself would do it. Now, the internet isn't slow, so what's going on here? Network nerds might know a little about the complex decision process BGP goes through to select the packet forwarding path through the global internet. 
One of the key metrics in BGP path selection is AS path. The lower the number of autonomous systems in the path, the more likely that path is to be selected. But that doesn't mean BGP is choosing the fastest path. That's where subspace comes in. Subspace has its own global network and it runs its own routing algorithm to be sure that your traffic is getting from point A to point B via the fastest path possible. If you have applications where latency matters, you really, really care about this. Any latency you can shed will improve the user experience for your real-time applications. Uh, okay, so what do we mean by real-time applications? So think voice and video applications, including SIP, gaming, fintech, transportation, database synchronization. In my network engineering career, I've had to support fintech voice, video, and database sync over transcontinental distances, and latency was the enemy I have always had to work around. I know subspace can't change the laws of physics, but they can give your real-time apps an edge with what they describe as a faster internet. Subspace promises to improve not just latency, but also loss and jitter, another enemy of the real-time application, because if the packets don't show up on time or at all, they just don't matter and the user misses out. Subspace is developer-friendly with a full API and inline DDoS mitigation that keeps the app running even in the face of the bad guys doing bad guy things, and Subspace makes it easy to get started. There's a free tier of their global IP proxy packet accelerator product that lets you test if Subspace is right for your application. There are several other products designed for specific use cases you can explore, many of them with pay-as-you-go pricing. To get started, visit ftl.app slash packetpushers. That is, one more time, FTL dot app slash packet pushers and if you do rock up on their doorstep tell them you heard about them on the packet pushers podcast network thank you for doing that and our thanks to subspace for being a sponsor yeah for sure and, that, and that's a fair answer i mean it's it's um you know for 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 lots of companies uh you know they may start out with uh one thing in mind and then the product ends up finding a different fit sort of in the market right um, and they have to adjust on the fly. And I've seen it happen with large and small companies, as I'm sure you have as well. And, you know, even though in dog years, you guys have been around for 21, right? Three years, yeah. still a relatively young company working in a relatively young space. And, uh, you know, the nature of the technology, as you're describing it to me and to the listeners, um, really is a, a very, um, a very fluid, a very ubiquitous sort of technology that could be used in any number of sort of use cases. I mean, there's lots and lots of things that you could do with this um, just by the nature of, you know, what it is. Right. Um, so I could certainly see, you know, that whole category of data synchronization being something that you guys were like, huh, okay. We didn't think about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think that uh, you just sparked a thought was one of the most interesting ones. And usually what we, I think Sebastian is so smart. He always looks for the super hard problems, but we recently ran into a big power conglomerate that um, uses a workforce tracking tool. And it was really, really hard for them to get all their data from the various ways they checked in, whether it was like desktop phones or electric time clocks or sort of old school swipe your pass card kind of thing. And that um, they were using MuleSoft for their whole enterprise, which made a lot of sense to gather data, but getting that data into this one application was costing them, you know, scores of hours every month just to keep it up and running. And they, they did a proof of concept in a hackathon in like four, four hours and were just 
stunned at how easy it was with what we did. Okay, very cool, very cool. Pulling together, uh, you know, data from time cards. Yeah, it is. It was not that big, sexy Netflix, Twitter, Facebook cloud scale problem that we thought we were going to solve. It was pretty pedestrian. But you know the the pedestrian problems, right? Like for this company, they're, they're spending hours every week getting this data and now you've eliminated that. I mean, that's a real business benefit, right? It may not be sexy. It may not be like high profile, but it's a real business benefit. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so I want to switch gears just a bit. Um, one of my goals with the podcast is, uh, you know, to talk with folks like yourself who are working in, in, you know, spaces that you may, maybe not haven't quite hit mainstream yet. Right. Hopefully you'll stick around long enough to, you know, to get, get paid off with this one. Um, right. But, um, and, and kind of help them help the listeners, um, understand like, okay, what do I need to do if I were interested in exploring this? Like, how would I get started? What are the technologies I need to know? What are sort of the prerequisites I should be learning that kind of thing. And I'm a firm believer in, you know, change being a constant as an IT professional, just because technology is, you know, ever evolving and, and we as technology professionals need to be constantly evolving along with it. I want to take a minute and just sort of like, you know, for listeners who are listening to this and thinking, wow, this is, this is cool tech. And I could see some use cases for it. You know, maybe I want to start exploring it. Maybe I want to run an internal POC or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, what are some of those prerequisites or sort of, you know, precursor technologies that they need to be familiar with before they start with trigger mesh. And you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, it's built on Kubernetes and, and Knative. So obviously those two would be <laughs> big ones, but, but what, what else, if anything? Yeah, I'm going to give you two paths because we sort of have two flavors. So um, last week we open sourced our product. And so that was so that we could really get a tool in front of that DevOps operations crowd. Um, so you hit it on the head, Kubernetes and Knative experience. Um, we actually have this, this concept of integration as code and sort of like infrastructure as code, but, uh, and that uses our trigger mesh integration language, which is just an extension of the HashiCorp configuration language that you would use for Terraform. So you don't need Terraform chops, but if you do, you would pick it up right away. And then, for that sort of uh, do-it-yourself for um, highly customizable cloud operator, those are the skills you mainly need. You need to understand how secrets work and, and all that other thing. There's other authentication methods, but it's pretty, pretty straightforward. And then it's very easy to create filters of your data. Um, and to help you out there, we just hired a, this spring, uh, Matt Ray of Chef Fame as the head of our DevRel. He uh, um, has been doing cloud integration and open source for 15 or so years. So his whole job is to make folks successful. Um, we're doing free training. We just updated all of our documentation so that it was more um, complete for those folks who were not engaged with customers uh, as, as our customers. And then we have the other path. So we have a low code interface and, you know, I have mixed feelings about it, but a lot of people compare it to Zapier for enterprise architecture. And in that case, you can go to low, all you need to understand is the web interface and how to authenticate into your um, 
cloud services. And then it's very much a form-driven experience where we run it for you. You don't need to know anything about Kubernetes or Knative. And that's that's the commercial side of our business. Um, but, but right now we're actually redesigning the interface to make it even easier. Um, we sort of modeled our original interface after uh, Google uh, Cloud Console, and now it's gonna be more, um, I don't want to, I know Sebastian has, hates it when I say drag and drop, but a more graphical um, representation of your topology and how to connect services. And that requires very little technical knowledge. And the idea there is that your cloud architects could set it up and then anywhere, one from your help desk to your data scientists who want to flood their own sort of data lakes that they're working on could do it without having to authenticate into the machines virtually, they would just be consuming the streams and directing them where they want to go. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned, uh, and and this is, I just want to make sure I'm clear here, you mentioned in the sort of the low code interface, you know, you, you use the words we're hosting it for you, right? But I'm assuming that's just, it's, it's is this is this a SaaS offering? Or is this do you just that was just a phrase to mean like we're hiding all the complexity for you and you just see the interface? Yeah, so we can host it for you. So we have a SaaS offering, but you can also deploy it on any compliant Kubernetes distribution. So we thought early on that we would be more SaaS. And what we're finding is a lot of our folks want to um, host it themselves. So we, we just are Kubernetes native and wherever you run Kubernetes, whether it's run for you by Amazon or you run it on-prem or you're using Rancher or OpenShift or whatever, we, we, we're happy to let it run wherever, but you can abstract, you know, what we're doing is abstracting the complexity of creating those data streams through the interface if you want to use that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And a separate, you know, sort of discussion that, you know, it might be interesting to have sometime is how, how many companies find that, you know, they initially think they might be doing more SaaS, but then as they begin to wade into sort of, you know, the enterprise market, they find that that doesn't necessarily go as well as they had hoped. And we don't need to get into that here, but I, just, yeah. I still find that to be an interesting observation that I've seen a, a few different times now. So, um, okay. So folks who are interested in getting started, you know, they need to be familiar with Kubernetes and Knative and then all of, obviously all of the sort of prerequisites for those technologies. Um, and then they've got these two paths within your system where they can do sort of, you know, this, this code-based approach, uh, more DIY, or on the commercial side, you've got this low code interface where they can, sorry, Sebastian, drag and drop things together to make their workflows to do what they want them to do. Um, very nice. Very nice. So I want you to um, put on your wizard hat and gaze into your crystal ball a little bit and just, you know, spend the next few minutes and then, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. You know, what excites you most about the future of Trigger Mesh first? And then following on to that, you know, what are some really exciting trends that you're observing in sort of the broader technology industry? But let's start with, you know, what excites you about the future of Trigger Mesh? Um, so what I'm really excited about is um, the fact that we've, decided to go all in on an open source um, development strategy. Sebastian and I have been doing open source for so long. I ran the Node.js Foundation and was VP of Marketing at Linux Foundation. And people that I know always assumed that we were open source. But uh, we had to get to the point where we had a core bit of technology that people could extend and collaborate on rather than putting 
a ton of people on the core development. So that's probably my number one thing. I'm, I mean, our goal or my personal goal is really, I want us to be the integration platform of choice for all Kubernetes users, which is a, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal. That's, that's what's really exciting because it's a much, it makes Trigger Mesh a much bigger than ourselves. And that's always a good thing in the industry when you, you've brought technology that, that transcends your company. Um, you know, Kubernetes transcending Google's development is a great example of that. So that's, that's the thing is, is that, and just this um, lends itself to where I think the industry is going is this idea of composable infrastructure where um, we have more and more infrastructure and more and more servers than ever before and more fewer people per server are touching those servers. So, you know, you may consume EC2 or um, Lambda or Azure or something like that. We're not all, A, I haven't busted my, my knuckles on a rack in, you know, 15, 16 years. That makes me happy. Racking, I don't rack servers anymore. Um, I don't provision servers. I don't have to worry about wiring the data center. I get to the part where I get to do something cool besides watching the little LEDs flash on the front of the server. So I think that's that's interesting. We've abstracted away the hardware. Um, when virtualization first got popular on x86, we started to abstract it away even more. And then we get to this point now today where containers and as are abstracting the operating system and serverless is abstracting it even farther and we have this these libraries of services that are the to use the sort of correlation between old school software and new school software is services are libraries and we're putting together to make really cool interesting solutions so that's that's the trend is that you know, multi-cloud, when we used to talk about multi-cloud meant Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and potentially duplicating workloads. But now what we see is, you know, Twilio and Salesforce and Splunk and Datadog and Elastic and countless other services that we're combining to do really cool things with from, and that's that's what's, you know, that multi-cloud where we're combining all of these things is really the, the SOA pattern that we talked about in the late 90s, but there were only four vendors that really supported it to an industry where we have broad, a broad um, number of services, high bandwidth everywhere, and you can combine them to make these cool, interesting applications that you combine geo lookups with your account data and maps and all these other things that that make things really useful. Yeah, I, I, I'm totally on board with how you're describing multi-cloud. I think a large a large part of the industry is still back in that duplicating workloads definition, yeah. unfortunately, right? But it makes total sense to me that you know if you really want to get the benefit out of cloud, um, cloud has to be more than just IaaS. Um, yeah. And and multi-cloud isn't about you know duplicating IaaS workloads um, because then you're just adding complexity and not getting enhanced reliability, but it has to be about sort of 
in my mind at least, choosing best of breed from the provider. So if Azure has the ideal service that you wanna use and you wanna combine that with some other service that AWS has and you're gonna mash it together with something that Google Cloud Platform offers, right? To being able to do that and, and it seems like you all with Trigger Mesh, you know, being this event-based um, system are prime positioned to be, you know, literally and figuratively right in the middle of all that. Awesome. Well, um, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate you being on the show. I've learned a lot. I hope the listeners have. As we get ready to wrap up, um, any, any, you know, final thoughts you want to share with listeners? Any, you know, like, hey, you know, think about this or think about that or, you know, whatever? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you just want to, as you look at, at your cloud strategy, you need to look at, when we talk about multi-cloud now, and this is what really was the genesis of Trigger Mesh is, Think about multi-cloud tooling and, you know, I, th I read a really good thing on, I think it was Hacker Noon last week about the fact that if you're going to be multi-cloud, you may want to look at multi-cloud tools like Terraform versus CloudFormation, which is AWS. So um, that's my takeaway. If you want to um, be successful is look at any kind of tooling that allows you the ability to um, manage multiple infrastructures and avoids that lock-in in the cloud. That's probably my bit of advice. It's a little self-serving, but I think it's it's true. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, there's more to it than than just, you know, what you guys are doing, at least for now, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, look at things like Terraform or Pulumi or others that give you that, uh, that functionality. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good advice. Uh, Mark, where can folks find out more about TriggerMesh? So if you go to triggermesh.com, all of our, you know, links to our GitHub, which is triggermesh slash triggermesh, go there um, and you can follow us. And we would love to work with virtually anyone who wants to solve those kind of problems. Awesome. And if somebody were interested in, you know, like following you particularly, they found your insight to be useful and wanted to, you know, get more yeah, from so you on social media, how would they, uh, how would they find you? I'm at, at MR Hinkle on Twitter is probably the best way. And I'm also the co-host of the Cloud Native AF podcast. That's application flows for, um, as the A, putting the A and the F in there. But uh, yeah, I'm there on there with Matt Ray and Sebastian. So love to connect with as many people as possible. All right, awesome. Well, uh, listeners, I'll include all these links in the show notes, as well as any other resources uh, that we may have discussed uh, while we were talking um, today. And thanks again for listening. Mark, thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about Trigger Mesh. Thanks for having me, Scott. Yeah, you bet. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. As always, we appreciate your time. Um, if you are interested in uh, following uh, updates from the podcast, you can find the podcast on Twitter as at FSJ Podcast. And of course, episodes are always published on the packetpushers.net website and through any variety of uh, podcast syndication platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, feel free to reach out to me, your host, Scott Lowe, as at Scott underscore Lowe on Twitter. Be happy to interact with you. And uh, if you get a moment to drop us a, a positive review on one of these uh, syndication platforms, we'd certainly appreciate it. That uh, helps us reach more listeners and continue to spread the learning. Uh, thanks again for listening to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where too much learning is never enough. Mm -hmm.